So, tonight what I want to do is discuss jhanas 5, 6, 7, 8. Actually, in the suttas, they're only referred to as the immaterial states. And they're not called jhanas until later. So you had the four jhanas and the four immaterial states. But you do find the series of all eight of them, one after the other, with the first immaterial state following on from the fourth jhana. So it makes sense to have the shorthand of talk about the eight jhanas. These appear to be optional. From reading the suttas, I get the impression that uh, four jhanas was sufficient. So if you could get as far as the fourth jhana, you would have very good concentration so that your insight practice would be enhanced. But if you can attain to these states, then they give you a mind that's even more concentrated, clearer, sharper, brighter, more malleable, more wieldy, more given to imperturbability. Your sense of self is uh, turned off or turned down for a longer period. And so your inside practice is probably more effective. The first four jhanas are sometimes referred to as the rupa jhanas, not because the jhanas in and of themselves are material, but they are states the likes of which we have experienced in the material world. For example, in the Vasudhimaga, there's a simile that's given that's actually quite helpful. You're lost in the desert. You don't have any water. Uh, it's a pretty precarious position. And you come over a little rise, and in the distance you see palm trees. It might be an oasis. You head towards it. <clears throat> As you get near to it, you meet people, they have wet hair, they have bundles of wet clothing. It's an oasis. You get really excited. First jhana. You come to the oasis. It's beautiful. Big pool of water. Lots of shade. Oh, you are so happy. Second jhana. You get in the water. You cool off. You drink all you want. Oh, you get out. You are satisfied. Third jhana. And then you lie down in the shade of a tree and have a rest. Fourth jhana. And this really does capture what it's like to go from first jhana all the way to fourth. The excitement, the happiness, the contentment, and the restful peacefulness of the fourth jhana. In fact, sometimes <clears throat> someone will come out of the fourth jhana and it may feel like they had a nap, except they know they weren't asleep. It can be that restful. It's a pretty good place to go to recharge yourself. But these other states, the arupa jhanas, the immaterial states, or the immaterial jhanas, they're not like something we experience in normal life. <coughs> I'll read you the description. Don't get your hopes up too much. Here, by passing entirely beyond bodily sensations, by the disappearance of all sense of resistance, 
and by non-attraction to the perception of diversity, seeing that space is limitless, one reach and, and remains in the realm of limitless space. So the name of the fifth jhana is the realm of limitless space. <clears throat> now you notice the first thing is by passing entirely beyond bodily sensations. In the first four jhanas, you still have bodily awareness. Remember, one drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness, etc. Okay, so you have bodily awareness in the first four. When you get to four, you want to get a really good four. You want to get deeply into four so that when you come out, you can basically forget about your body. <clears throat> when you're in four, you may find that you're sort of leaning over. You know, your, your energy level is so down in four that you're leaning over. Uh, now, if you're peaking in a meditation hall where there's other people around and you see somebody leaning over like that, you probably think, oh, they've fallen asleep. Don't think that. Just think, oh, maybe they're in the fourth jhana. How nice. Okay. <clears throat> so if in four you find yourself with your posture really kind of slumped over, get your posture upright. Get yourself settled in a nice upright posture. <clears throat> and then by passing entirely beyond bodily sensations, right, so you got to be really concentrated, by the disappearance of all sense of resistance and by non-attraction to the perception of diversity. Yeah, that probably doesn't make a lot of sense. So get yourself upright. And what Ayakima told me was get in touch with the boundaries of my being and expand them to fill the room. And once I had the room filled, expand them to fill the building. And once I filled the building, expand them to fill the retreat center. And then just keep expanding to fill the town and all the way out to the horizon and just keep going with this expansion. Focus on the outer edges of the expansion. <coughs> If you can focus on the outer edges of the expansion really well, you forget about your body. You won't notice it. I mean, your attention is now far away. It got all the way to the horizon. The expansion needs to go smoothly. This is by the disappearance of all sense of resistance. Sometimes when you're expanding, it feels like you get stuck, in which case you've either got to push through it or maybe go in a different direction and by non-attraction to the perception of diversity. So when you first start out, there's your body and the room and the building and the retreat center and the town and, all right, so there's diversity. But once you hit the horizon, just go. Don't think of going past moon, Mars, Jupiter, or anything like that. Just stay focused on the expansion. Stay focused on the outer edges of the expansion. Now, you could expand out to plus and minus x-axis. You could expand up in front of you. You could expand up and out. This is the one that most people like, is expanding up and out. Doesn't matter. 
just expand smoothly, no sense of resistance, and eventually no diversity. Just There's just expansion. It's just going. If you can do this without becoming distracted, eventually, not right away, but eventually, a vast empty space appears before you. Put your attention on the space. I don't actually have to tell you that. When it arises, it's dramatic enough. You'll put your attention on it. The expansion is not the fifth jhana. Let me repeat that. The expansion is not the fifth jhana. When the space appears, that's the fifth jhana. Okay? Just like when you're learning the first jhana, the pleasant sensation is not the first jhana. The first jhana is when the piti and sukha arise. Same thing here. The expansion is not the fifth jhana. It's when the infinite space appears. The space could be white. I get it as off-white often. Uh, sometimes people get it as uh, light gray. It may or may not have a horizon line. Doesn't matter. And it's also possible to get it as black, like outer space, but no stars, planets, galaxies, or anything like that. It's just big black space. It's sort of like you're in the Arizona desert. Yeah, I know most of you maybe haven't been to the Grand Canyon. But, yeah, you're walking across the desert and suddenly you come to this great big canyon. <clears throat> the Grand Canyon. Uh, it's like that, only there's no bottom and there's no other side. It's just the gigantic space. And you put your attention on that space. It's called, well, the translation here actually says the sphere of infinite space. Uh, they didn't actually have the concept of zero at the time of the Buddha, so I rather doubt they had the concept of infinity. But they did have the concept of limitless or boundless. The word translated as sphere is ayatana. Ayatana, it refers to the senses. So your eye is the internal ayatana, and what you're seeing is the external ayatana. Or the sound is the external ayatana, and your ear is the internal ayatana. So really, it's the ayatana of limitless space. Or we could say the sensing of limitless space. I think that's a more accurate description than the usual sphere or realm of infinite space. And it's limitless space. There's no boundary, so boundless space. Again, as with all the jhanas from two onwards, you want to be able to stabilize it and stay in it for 10 to 15 minutes to get good at it. And then, and by passing entirely beyond the experience of limitless space, seeing that consciousness is limitless, one reaches and remains in the experience of limitless consciousness. The instructions are getting a bit sparse. All right, so you got this big space. The trick is to realize that you can't be conscious of a limitless space with a limited consciousness. 
your consciousness has to be as big as the space. So you shift your attention from the space to your consciousness of the space. Become aware of your awareness of the space. Become conscious of your consciousness of the space. When you do that, it can feel like you become absorbed into the space, and now you have an unlimited consciousness. Whereas in five, there's a tiny sense of observer observing the space before them, and maybe below them, behind them. In the sixth jhana, the observer and the observe have merged, and there's just the experience of this giant consciousness. My consciousness is without limit. If you come from a spiritual tradition where the purpose of the tradition is union with Atman or union with a higher consciousness, you might mistake the sixth jhana for that having happened. Uh, no, you're just having an experience that feels like that. Now, the orthodox understanding of these higher jhanas is that you are actually tapping into an infinite space or tapping into an infinite consciousness. I don't think that's what's happening. There is no ontologically existent infinite consciousness out there that you're tapping into. You're having an experience and you interpret it as, I'm having an experience that my mind is without limit. Okay? Sometimes when you get this limitless consciousness really strongly, it might seem like there are other consciousnesses within that consciousness. You know, a few little ones over here and a few little ones over there. It's not that you can read the minds of people in the room or anything like that. It just sort of feels like that. I've been in the sixth jhana many, many times, and I've only had it happen to me probably, I don't know, six, eight, ten times. Not very often. It's only when I get a really, really strong sixth jhana do I ever get that sense. Okay, so... If you don't get it, it doesn't mean anything. If you do get it, it's like, okay, yeah, that's a good one. All right? And again, you want to be able to stay there for 10 to 15 minutes to get good at it. And then, and by passing entirely beyond the experience of limitless consciousness, seeing that there is no thing, one reaches and remains in the experience of no thingness. It's given here as no hyphen thingness, which is just the translator's idea, but it's a very good idea. This state is a state where there's nothing. I mean, in five, there's space. Nothing in the space, but very definitely big space. I mean, you look at it and you go, that's a big space, right? And oh, by the way, there's nothing in it. You get to six, and it's like, oh, my consciousness is really big. But in seven, there's nothing. The way to get there, in six, once it's going really well, there's no sense of space left. There's just this 
giant consciousness. What is the content of that consciousness? Well, when you look, there's no content, nothing. Put your attention on that nothing, that nothingness. What I find is there's a small nothing, you know, I don't know, foot in diameter, a foot from my face. Just sitting there, it's black. If I look at the edges, there's nothing there. I look again, there's nothing there, there's nothing there. So as I stay there, the nothing gets bigger. It goes from, I don't know, volleyball size to basketball size to beach ball size to bigger, bigger. It never gets infinite, but it gets to be a big nothing. And for me, it's always black. Most people describe it as either black or deep purple or dark blue, something like that. And there's nothing within that. Although some people describe it as, <clears throat> well, remember on an old TV when you turned it to where there was no channel, you got black and white static, right? So imagine black and black static. It's just a sense of movement. Uh, that, that seventh jhana can show up like that as well. So I'm told. I've never experienced it like that, but uh, I came and talked about it being like that, and I've had a number of students talk about it like that. But I would say the majority of people is just, there's nothing. It's sort of like you go down into the basement, and it's dark. And so you hit the light switch, and it doesn't work. And you're trying to figure out what's in the basement. And you're looking, you can see there's nothing right in front of you. And then your eyes get a little more custom, and there's nothing back over here, and there's nothing out there. Why, there's nothing down here at all. It's that kind of nothing. <clears throat> or you have the cookie jar, sorry, the biscuit jar. And you take the top off, and there's nothing in there. It's, it's, the, sense, it's the sense that there's nothing. For example, look around the room you're in right now. There's a bunch of stuff in there. You know, I, I see people have artwork and they have uh, books and, yes, furniture and so forth. Well, suppose tonight when you're asleep, somebody comes in and takes everything out of the room. And you walk in the next door, you open, next morning you open the door and you go, there's nothing in here. It's that kind of nothing. This is not the same as the emptiness that's talked about in the Mahayana tradition and also in the Theravada, but it's sort of famous from the Mahayana tradition. We'll get to emptiness uh, Saturday night. Okay, this is nothingness. There is no thing to be found. Sometimes people stumble into this jhana unexpectedly. I know this because I've had several people come on a retreat with me and they come to their first interview and they're like, can, can I tell you about something that happened to me? It's like, sure. And they describe falling into the void. There was, there was nothing. It was terrifying. And I was like, hey, what'd you do? Oh, I went running to the teacher. Well, what'd they tell you? Oh, they told me to get something to eat and take a shower and don't meditate for three days. They go, well, it sounds like to me you fell into the seventh jhana. I don't know. It was just really scary. So they go away and, uh, you know, they learn the first six jhanas. Eventually, it might take several retreats. And then they come back 
And yeah, that's number six. So here are the instructions for seven. I don't think I want to go back there. No, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Here are the instructions. I give them the instructions. They go away. They come back three days later. Yeah, yeah, this is right where it was before. Only this time it wasn't frightening. It was frightening before because they didn't know what was happening. There's nothing there to be afraid of. It's my favorite jhana. There's nothing to bother me. It's a great place to hang out. It's just nothing. And then by passing entirely beyond the experience of no-thingness, one reaches and remains in the experience of neither perception nor non-perception. Perception is a translation of the Pali word sanya. Sanya refers to your ability to name things, identify them, conceptualize them. For example, can people see the flowers and the bird? Can you see the flowers and the bird? Yeah, there's no flowers and bird. It's just colored shapes. The flowers and the bird are in your mind. Your eye sees colored shapes and you interpret it as flowers and bird, right? That's Sanya. Do you know what this is? Can you see it, right? Yeah, cell phone, right? Yeah, you're only seeing pixels. That's all you're seeing is pixels. You are interpreting these pixels as a cell phone. You see me, you see my eyeglasses. No, you see pixels, right? They make a colored shape and you interpret it as person, got a beard, wearing glasses, got a Tibetan tonka over his shoulder, right? But what you're seeing is colored shapes. It's easiest to see it if it's a painting because here it's pretty easy to see there's just colored shapes there and that you are constructing the bird and the flowers. Well, we do this all the time, and this is what is meant by sanya. Sanya is usually translated as perception, although I prefer to translate it as conceptualization. So, this eighth jhana is the experience of neither conceptualizing nor not conceptualizing, neither perceiving nor not perceiving neither identifying nor not identifying, neither naming nor not naming. I don't guess that helps a lot. Anyhow, that's where the name comes from. It's a really difficult state to describe because, see, it's a state that doesn't have any characteristics by which you can describe it. Yet you know your mind is in a state that has no characteristics by which you can describe where you are. Uh, that probably doesn't help a lot either. <laughs> Sorry. The good news is, it's not that hard to find from the seventh jhana, the realm of nothingness. You need a good seven to get to eight. Uh, a big nothingness. A big, stable nothingness. And then you just let it collapse and come to rest in front of your face and see if your mind went into a state that doesn't have any characteristics by which you can describe it, and yet you can stay there, focused on staying in this state that you can't describe because it doesn't have any characteristics. 
If so, yeah, that's probably eight. Eight is far more fragile than any of the preceding jhanas. If, say, this is the contentment of the third jhana, and this is your one-pointed focus, right? You might start to lose your focus, and the contentment, whoop, you got back in time, right? You start to lose it, the contentment goes away. If you get back in time, yeah, it just comes right back. You might wobble, you know, a little bit. You can even do that with seven. Nothingness, your focus, don't be gone for long. If you're gone for very long, yeah, no seven left. For eight, yeah. In eight, you might have time for one simple sentence like that doesn't contain the words I, me, or mine, okay, and come back and, yeah, there's something left of eight to reestablish it. But I couldn't tell you the number of times I've gotten into eight. Seems like it's a really good eight. And then next thing I know, I'm in the middle of some paragraph of distraction and I have no idea how I got there and there's nothing left of eight. So I got to go back to seven or five and work my way back up. Uh, definitely more fragile than any of the preceding ones. The purpose of these is just to give you more concentration if you find they're, that they're accessible. I noticed quite a difference coming out of four and doing my insight practice and coming out of eight and doing the same practice. My ego stays quiet for longer. My distractions are further away and are less likely to intrude. But if you can get to four, yeah, you've got a mind that's really well suited for insight practice. And if you can get any further, it just gets more concentrated. Now there is a state that is sometimes referred to as the ninth jhana. Uh, it's never called that in the suttas. That's a later designation. It's talked about in the suttas. It's called the cessation of feeling and perception, or Naroda Vedna Sanya. Uh, Vedna is your initial categorization of a sensory input, and Sanya, as I said, is your conceptualizing. So the cessation of, well, processing your sensory input, basically. It's a state of suspended animation. You might have heard about some Indian sadhu. They dig a pit and he put him in it and cover it over and then they uncover it three days later and he's fine. He was in this state. It is said that it's possible for someone at the third stage of awakening or at full awakening to stay in this state for up to a week. If you're not at those high refined levels, you would stay in for lesser periods of time if you get there. There's a, a really interesting documentary called Shortcut to Nirvana. It's uh, available on YouTube, or at least it was last time I checked. Uh, it's a documentary on the Kumbha Maya Festival that was held in India in 2001. Uh, like I say, it's really interesting. It's got all these sadhus. It's got the Dalai Lama. Uh, it's got Pilot Baba. It's got yeah, lots of interesting characters. It's definitely worth seeing. In one of the scenes, they've dug a pit. It looks like it's about 
eight feet deep. And this Japanese woman climbs down a ladder into the pit. And then they pull out the ladder. They put roofing tin over it and cover it with dirt. End of scene. More sadhus. Dalai Lama again. Still more sadhus. You know, three days go by. Come back and they're sweeping the dirt away from the the roofing tin. They pick up the roofing tin, put the ladder down. She climbs out all happy. She must have been in the state of Naroda. Uh, put herself in suspended animation. The astronauts, the guys with the right stuff, they put them in a sensory deprivation tank. About the best any of them did was eight hours, you know, before they started losing it and hallucinating and needing to come out. And yet this woman was down there for three days, totally dark, totally no sound. Yeah, isolation tank. Go down there and sit and enter this state, no problem. At one point, I was in Thailand for Thai New Year's. Thai New Year's is at the end of the hot season and the beginning of the rainy season. It's in the spring, and so the Thais do their spring cleaning. And uh, one of the things they would do in any Buddhist household, they would have a Buddhist shrine, and so they would wash the Buddha statue. And the tradition developed that they would take some of the water they used to wash the Buddha statue, and they would sprinkle it on the hands of their elders to salute their Buddha nature. Well, in modern times, the sprinkling has gotten a bit out of hand, and everybody in the country is throwing buckets of water on everybody else in the country. I mean, it's like 38 degrees out, so yeah, it's not a big deal. Uh, kind of nice. I was in Chiang Mai, which was the center of this festival when it took place. And uh, yeah, you better have bought yourself a bucket, right? Because when you leave your guest house room, somebody's going to greet you with a bucket of water. You better have already filled your bucket so you can greet them back, right? And refill before you go down to the main square because somebody else is going to greet you with a bucket of water. Now get to the main square and the Thais have set up these spigots that come out that if you insert a one-bot coin, which at that time was worth four U.S. cents, uh, out would come water. And they'd put big barrels under the spigot so they could collect the water. And they'd see me coming, and they go, one bot, one bot. And if I put in a one-bot coin, then I could refill my bucket, which, of course, I'd emptied on the way walking to the, the main square. It's a very participatory festival. You don't just observe. You will become a participant. So that first morning in the main square, off to the side, they'd built a little, a little hut, a little pavilion. And seated in the pavilion was a monk. He was seated in full lotus. His eyes were open and downcast. And he was obviously meditating, wasn't even blinking. It was kind of inspiring to see somebody sitting in the midst of all this chaos, because right there on the street, you know, buckets of water going everywhere, uh, and just meditating and not being disturbed. He was there that afternoon when the big parade came by. He was there that night when they had the first round of the beauty pageant like 30 meters away. 
right? He was there the next day, all day. He was there the next night when they had the second round of the beauty pageant. He was there the third morning. He looked a little tired, serenely tired. Okay, he was there that afternoon when the biggest parade of all comes through. He was there that night when they had the finals of the beauty pageant. He was gone the next day. He had to be in the state of Naroda to sit there all day long, never blinking, never moving. It was quite inspiring to, to see in person, yeah, this is possible. It's, yeah, quite good. The other thing I can tell you about this state I mentioned that I had been on a month-long retreat with Powalk. Well, a few years after that, I was on a four-month retreat with Powalk. This was, both of these were at the Forest Refuge in Barrie, Massachusetts. And I went to the Forest Refuge two and a half months before Powalk was scheduled to show up, basically so I could get in good shape. And so I did two and a half months of concentration practice. Because I had been told, if you want to learn Powox Janus, you better plan on six months. So I was going to be there before he got there. So I had two and a half months of practice. Now, to get to Powox Jana, I mentioned you've got to get the nimitta, the circle of light, the steady, bright circle of light. And so about a month after he arrived doing his practice, I was getting a nimitta, right? Okay, now to get to his first jhana, you have to absorb into the nimitta. Uh, the method is just follow your breathing, right? You do the counting, you know, up to eight uh, in the gaps between out and in for half an hour, and then you drop it and you just keep following your breath. That's it. Just follow your breath. And then eventually the nimitta will show up. I mean, it only took me another month after he got there. So three and a half months in, I'm getting steady nimitta on a pretty regular basis. And then, yeah, don't look at the nimitta. Yeah, it's kind of hard. I mean, this very interesting thing showed up and don't look at it. Just keep paying attention to your breathing. And what Powak said was that eventually the nimitta and your breath become the same and you absorb into it. Well, I came back from my walk after lunch one day and I started meditating. And when the nimitta appeared, it was more distinct and more interesting than I had ever seen before. And I decided I was going to put my attention on it. And when I did, it was 45 minutes later. At least I'm guessing it's 45 minutes later, right? I was gone. There was no sounds. There were no body sensations. And there was no passage of time. The nimitta never went away. You know, I put my attention on it. And when I came out, it was like, oh, that was cool. And I looked over at the clock. I knew what time I'd started meditating. I had some idea of the time before I put my attention on the nimitta. And there was like 45 minutes missing. And so I was gone for 45 minutes. That's Powak's first jhana. Okay, that's the state of Naroda. You can't even tell what jhana you're in when you're in it because everything is gone. The only way you know which jhana you're in is when you come out, you look at your heart center. When he told me that, you know, to 
before I, this happened, I pointed to my center of my chest, and he goes, it points off to the side of my chest. So when I come out and look at the clock, it's like, oh, yeah, right, look off to the side. Well, if you look off to the side like that, you're supposed to see the reflection of the nemeta. Well, if you had your eyes tightly closed for probably an hour and a half at that point, and you look down and away, you're going to get a little light leakage, which I took it was supposed to be the reflection of the nemeta. And then you could see the factors of the jhana. So as soon as I did that, this way, sweet wave of PT and sukha comes over me. Okay, yeah, PT and sukha. Now, could I see initial attention? Look again, yeah. I saw I put my attention on the nimitta. Could I see sustained attention? Look again. Well, yeah, that's all there was there was sustained attention. Could I see one-pointedness? Look again. Yep, that was very one-pointed. So that meant I was in the first jhana. Okay. Now, I wasn't sure at that point. So the next day when I had an interview, I just described what happened. And Powell gets a big smile. He says, good. Do for one hour, two hour, three hour. Like, okay. He never said it was the first jhana, but he had a French-Canadian monk, and I had an interview with him the day after that, and I asked him, was that the first jhana? He says, yeah, that's the first jhana. Cool. So go do it again, right? So I want to see what happens. It took me about three days to realize that if I try and see what happens, nothing's going to happen. All right, don't try and see what happens. You know, like, don't think of a pink elephant. Every one of you just thought of a pink elephant, right? So, I never got back there. What would happen is I'd get the nimitta, right? But after a while, I would just fall into the jhanas that I'd learned from Ayakema. Not going into the first, but going into either the second or the third or the fourth. And if I came in second, I would then move to third and fourth. Or if I came in third, I'd move to fourth. And after a while in fourth, then I would start doing some insight practice. Uh, that was all that happened for the rest of the retreat. You know, just sort of trying to get back there and not getting back there. But having very deep jhanas as I had learned them from Ayakema. So this state does exist. I've been there. I've seen people who have been there. I saw it in the movies that someone was there. Uh, yeah. As I say, it's called the ninth jhana. The Buddha talks about it. He says that he had a bad back. And sometimes he would give the beginning of a Dhamma talk. And then he would ask Sariputta or Moggallana to elaborate. He'd go down, uh, lie down, listen to it. Right, and then it was after it was over. He'd come back and say, "Yeah, if I'd given the talk, that's what I would have said." So his back was bad enough that he couldn't give the Dhamma talk, and he eventually says to Ananda, "This is in Dignikaya 16, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta." He says to Ananda, "The only time I get relief is when I enter into the signless concentration of mind." which I take it is that he enters into the state of Naroda because, well, it's the cessation of Vedana and Sanya. So he was experiencing no unpleasant Vedana. And that was where he would get his relief. 
So these are the so-called higher jhanas, the four immaterial states, plus the state of Naroda.